My guest today is Pat Garrity. So welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. That's great to be here, Paul. So step back a little bit. Tell us who you are for the basketball fanatics and for the people who don't know anything about the sport. So my identity is most attached to, to my basketball career. So I'm a former NBA player, played for 10 years in the NBA, nine of those with the Orlando Magic. Before that, played four years at University of Notre Dame. That was a big part of my life. I mean, up until, you know, from the time I started playing basketball seriously to the eighth grade till I was 32 year old, that was who I was. Since then, I've done uh, a couple of different things. I, I retired, went back to business school, got my MBA from Duke. Through happenstance, met one of our former colleagues, Jim Haskell. Um, yes. When, and at a wedding, in fact, and called him up to, to get his advice on another thing I was thinking about doing for a summer internship. And he said, well, why don't you come check out Bridgewater? Yes, Jim is um, and, fantastic. <laughs> he's yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's. If, if he were a college coach, he'd be one of the best recruiters in the world. I was interested as my career progressed in basketball. I got more and more interested in finance, so I wanted to to explore something in that industry when I was done. So I had a chance to come and work at Bridgewater for the summer, having no prior experience in in the financial world, and then you know, luckily was was offered a job there to work in the client service group. So I did that for about three and a half years. Really enjoyed it. Some of the smartest people I've ever worked or been around. Then I had a chance to get back into the NBA. So my former coach, Stan Van Gundy, got the job to run the Detroit Pistons. And so he was building a front office. It was a chance for me to get back in the NBA in, in a management role. So I had been doing that for the last six years. I was the assistant GM for the Pistons up until last summer when when, when you don't do well enough <laughs> and you don't win enough games, your owner brings in a new front office. So so just left the Pistons last summer. And since then, I've been taking a little bit of time off, just started doing some TV stuff, doing NBA analysis and trying to find what's next for me. Fantastic. So there's, there's obviously there's a ton to talk about here. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. One of the things you and I sort of exchanged notes ahead of this conversation. And one of the things that struck me is when you sort of get transformed from being a regular kid who's just sorting their way through high school and then all of a sudden you just have this monster growth and it's just sort of this transformation it's almost like in a movie or something like that that you just have this monster growth and it begins to change your thinking about everything so what was that like it was actually happening to me i guess it wasn't that abnormal it was probably abnormal for my my parents who saw a kid who was, you know, 5'10", 5'11", when they were eighth grade, spring up to 6'8", by their sophomore year. Um, yeah. But but really, I mean, basketball was such a big part of my life, and I, and I loved to play the game. And, and at that time, it wasn't because, you know, my goal was to go and get a college scholarship or to be a professional player. Like, uh -huh. I just loved to play and to get better. And it was one of those things where – as you do well in something, you enjoy it more and you want to set your sights on something bigger. And so there was no kind of grand plan down the road, kind of incremental steps of my career brought me to the next step and then the next step and the next step. So it, it didn't really feel that strange. It's probably a lot different now for elite athletes. The ability and kind of the need, I think, some see to promote yourself does put quite a bit of pressure on you and a video of you can go viral and millions of people can see it when you're at a, a really young age. I didn't really have to deal with any of that. Was there a moment when you were 
in that age when all of a sudden you began to realize there was just a gift that you had. I remember hearing one coach talk with us, an Olympic athlete, Natalie Coughlin, she's a swimmer, and they described watching her swim when she was a teenager. And swimming is crazy competitive. Yeah. And, you know, there's 400 kids at a meet, and these kids would jump in, and she was literally like half a pool length ahead of the other kids. And so the coaches <laughs> were a little bit like, okay, this one's different. Did you have those moments, or was it incremental work? I can't really remember one moment. There were a couple of summers where, you know, there were these like step changes. So I think the after my sophomore year in high school, um, I put up pretty good numbers on my team. And then AAU teams that are, that are travel teams kind of like track those things. And I got invited to play on a team that went to uh, Las Vegas during Easter. You were and living in Colorado at the time? I was time, living or? in Colorado at yeah, the time. Yeah. So that, like that kind of thing was my first ex- time I you know played in front of college coaches. And so Heading into my junior year, I'd gotten some letters from some mid-lower level Division One teams. So that was kind of the point where I was like, you know, playing college basketball is what, you know, I, I think I can do this. And, and then the next summer, you got invited to play on a better team and to go to a couple of events that were higher exposure. And then, you know, it was higher Division One level teams. And, and then, you know, kind of the recognition comes along with it. It just seemed way more like incremental for me. Are there lessons you would have for other athletes going through that you're talking about how the media is different now yeah. from what you were you were exposed to oh, was man, there a key I'm... coaching that you were getting was it more things that you were figuring out on your own how did you balance that in schoolwork this is 1992 through 94 so the way it is now is much more difficult for young athletes just because the number of events there are mm-hmm. so many more. So it didn't seem all that you know burdensome. I was fortunate to have good coaches in the sense that they held everyone on the team accountable. They, they coached, coached me hard. Th- there was always good structure around it. I think the, you know, the advice to younger athletes right now is you really have to be honest with yourself whether or not you, you love the sport and love to compete and love to put the time in versus if you know you're really talented and you love being recognized and being thought of as special because of your talent but really it's not it's not something that you kind of love doing when no one's looking huh that's interesting you know because because the thing is is as as you progress in in levels like it once you go from from high school to college, the amount of work that you have to put in and what you have to sacrifice is a lot. And if you don't actually love it and you don't love kind of being around to your teammates and putting the work in, it just, you give so much up at that age that you're not going to be happy at the end of the day. Why do you think for those people who don't make it into professional sports, why do you think sports are so important for kids? Number one, it's the social aspect of it. You're around other people your age doing something for which you have a shared purpose. It's where you kind of get lessons of how to deal with adversity. It's where you get lessons of how to deal with success, kind of all in a compressed timeline and things about sacrifice, roles, finding out what how to be a good teammate. Sports is, to me the best training ground for those kind of attributes. Do you have a specific story or anecdote that was sort of, you're being a punky 15-year-old and the coach says something and you're like, oh, wow. 
Well, this, this goes back to when I was in eighth grade. I played for a really old school coach. And, and during tryouts, we were doing layups and I like high fived a kid. And he's like, we don't showboat around here. <laughs> um, and so, you know, where I, where I, it just so happened because there are coaches that are way looser than this, that I just had coaches that were really stressed and emphasized, you know, being competitive trying to win and, and doing everything it takes to win, but, but trying to be humble. You make it seem easy. I want to get to college in a second, but it's also, it's hyper competitive. I mean, yeah. were there people who you were up against that you're like, I don't understand how they do that. Yeah. So, so what happens is like, I was from a town outside of Colorado Springs. I mean, we were four a out of six a, so we were, you know, not a small high school, but you know, decent sized high school. And you know, you're the best player kind of in your league. And then, you know, I progressed to one of the best players in the state. You know, I was named for a player of the year in high school. And I remember going to a tournament in LA with this elite team. And there were kind of all the best players on, in the Western US there. And we played in a game one time with, I don't know if you, you know the name Tony Gonzalez, but Tony Gonzalez is a, is a Hall of Fame tight end. And I was on the floor with him and I'm like, this is the most athletic person I've ever seen. And this might be the most, the best basketball player I've ever seen in my life. And he didn't even go on and play basketball. Like he went and played football at Cal and then played, had a Hall of Fame career in the NFL. So, you know, and, and that's just getting kind of to the college level. So you kind of really have to find whatever special skill that makes you kind of an effective player on the team. So you become more, you know, most players become, go from being this general player that does everything to kind of more and more specialized kind of the higher you go up, except for the, you know, the best of the best. Those guys can kind of do everything. Okay. So then you go on to college and you had a whole choice of different places you could think about. You decided to go to Notre Dame. What was behind that? And then what was behind pre-med? I was a good student in high school, so I wanted to go to a place that had a great reputation academically. So my final two schools were Stanford and Notre Dame, and I took a trip to Stanford, and I'm like, this is where I want to go. I don't even want to take my trip to Notre Dame. And my dad said, well, just take the trip. You already said you were going to go. And when I went out there, it was raining the whole time, gray, Midwest, South Bend. But, you know, there was just something about, and I can't even, I was 17 years old. I don't know why I made this decision. It, it was just something about kind of the feel of the place, the community. It seemed like a tighter knit place. There was also from a basketball perspective, looking at the two teams, it looked like I was going to be able to play right away as a freshman there. And then your second question, why, why pre-med? I had always enjoyed science. I had no goal or, or idea to play professionally afterward, I thought, you know, I'll go and play and study pre-med and go be a, be a doctor. <laughs> okay. So two, two related questions. So first of all, you've got these coaches saying that you should be humble. Is, is the coach of Notre Dame <laughs> yeah. saying you should be humble too? Oh, yeah. He was in, and he's since passed away, but John McLeod was, is another, he was an old school guy too. Like he made us wear, you know, we, we had to wear ties to the team meal before the game. Like he, and, and he wouldn't be, he was nowhere without a tie. So yeah, same, okay. same kind of guy. And at the same time, sports are worshipped there. So when you're there and you sink a basket and you have thousands of people applauding, it's got to be the most unbelievable adrenaline rush ever. 
or maybe it's not. I don't know. I would guess nobody's <laughs> ever done that for me. I've never been able. But the uh, I'm imagining that's got to be a little bit of a challenge to be humble, but to be good enough to get all those fans excited. Well, Notre Dame is a unique place with respect to athletes because they're one of the few places, and I, I imagine Ivies are like this a little bit, but they don't have an athletic dorm or they don't have a place where kind of the athletes live together. And, and you uh-huh. don't go in room with a, another basketball player, football player, your freshman year. They, they throw everybody into the mix and you're integrated into the student body. Okay. So I can get that you're integrated in the student body, but still there's the issue <laughs> yeah. that you sink the three-point thing and people go absolutely haywire and the coach yeah. tells okay. you to be humble. Yeah. When you're out there competing, you have to have a little bit of swagger about you and a little bit of and a toughness and competitiveness. There is a little bit of an arrogance on the court and in uh-huh. competition that you that you need to have. I, I guess what I'm talking about when it comes to kind of being humble is like being humble with respect that you need to keep working and, and putting every kind of thing toward getting better because it's such a competitive thing that you can't take your foot off the the gas in terms of trying to improve that that's more what i kind of meant by being humble like in you know you, you haven't arrived there's always someone who's better than you there's always someone that's working harder from you kind of trying to take your spot no i get the attitude yeah. but i'm saying that there's also we're animals parts of us <laughs> and that when you're you're at that young age and you have this talent and then you're playing and the crowd's going nuts it yeah. must be kind of there must oh, be a certain yeah. intoxication no, to that, that that you're sort of yeah. going up and down yeah, that, that, no, definitely that. I'm, but I would say more than that, even it's like, it's that happening and that at, being in that atmosphere while also being kind of in the heat of competition. That's the intoxicating part. It, you know, when I think back kind of on my basketball career, it's like, it's not only kind of the praise of you, it's, you know, doing something at the highest level against great competition all the while where, you know, there's cheering or booing or like this, just your, your senses are just so heightened. I think that that, yeah, it, that's for sure. Kind of, a, and, and for me and for, you know, everyone who's played at a high level and that's retired from sports, that's, there's just nothing, at least I haven't found it yet that you kind of can replace that. With. <laughs> I've, I've heard that with interviews with professional athletes and then describing a number of football players, and describing that feeling of, I forget, it was some super famous lineman, like when he made a sack and yeah. there's like 30,000 people in the, I mean, it's like Roman gladiators type of type yeah. of thing a little bit. One of the things that I think that we all try to like can remember is, is times when you're just like in the moment, there's yeah. just like time kind of doesn't, you know, the past, the future don't matter. And you're just kind of savoring kind of that moment in time and to me like sports and i'm sure there are other things i'm sure when you're like climbing a you know a a rock wall or a mountain it's the same way but that's what it is about sports is that's you just have so many of those moments and once you've had those in that context it's really hard to find them doing other things yeah there's a there's another guest i had on paul cook who's not as high profile as uh, basketball but he's a very very successful crew coach and he described the power of rowing to him was that when you're doing it, you're completely in the moment. You know, you're focused on the oar, the other rowers, mm. the boat, the water, and you're just, you have all these other concerns outside of it. But when you're in the boat, you just get completely transported and you're describing the same same type of thing, the flow. So you, when did you begin to sort of hone in on your specialty? In college, I was the leading scorer on our team. I, you know, took a lot of shots 
kind of every game. And it wasn't really until I got to the NBA that I needed to do something that kind of kept me on the floor. And it wasn't until I got to Orlando and I played for Doc Rivers there that he said, this is what I want you to do. You play power forward and you stay outside the three-point line and you space the defense and you shoot threes. <laughs> and, you, and if you take more than two dribbles, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> um, this is very clean, and so, advice. Yeah, and so, and so in the NBA, you don't have a choice. Either you find something that kind of a role that can keep you on the floor or you just don't play and your career's over. So it turned out that kind of three-point shooting was was my calling card. All right. So then you get into the, you, you get drafted, you get, I think that you, you said your thing number 19 or something like that Yep. in the, in the draft. So then it all of a sudden, this thing that's been your passion, that's the thing you're in the flow of the moment. And so all of a sudden now it's a job and you're an athlete, but also you're a professional entertainer at this point. What's that transition like? Well, for the first couple of years, you know, and this is true for all, all young players. I mean, you're, you're at that point, just potential. And so in my rookie year, particularly, I didn't play a lot like early on and you're just kind of working on your skill work. And so everything that you do well is kind of like, oh, okay, he's getting better. He's making it. There's not really a lot of pressure on you. It's a little wait, bit wait, Slow down for a second. So at this point, you're already like, you're one of the best players of these, blah, blah, blah. And then, they, then you go to basketball. It sounds like you're starting out. He's working on his skills. It's like this yeah. point you've been playing for like eight <laughs> years competitively on all these. I would imagine your skills are pretty rock solid, but what, what yeah, skills but it, are you working it, on? I mean, the, the difference between the kind of college and the NBA is just a world apart. Everyone's bigger. Everyone is faster. Everyone is more skilled. You're kind of going into a group of grown men that have been doing this some for, you know, 10, 15 years. Do you have an anecdote when you first started as pro that all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is a totally different level? I remember one time, and this is a little bit later in my career, but it was, I don't know, we were playing Portland. And that at that time, Portland had Rashid Wallace, Scottie Pippen, Bonzi Well. I mean, for your, for your listeners who know basketball, like these guys are all like between six, nine and seven feet tall with like seven, three wingspans. And I'm like standing on the wing looking to like make a pass. And these guys all have their arms raised out. And I'm like, I literally can't like the, I can't make the ball where I want it to go to. So like, that's, I mean, there, there are plenty of those, but yeah, like at that point you're, you're, you are starting over like as even, even as a 21 year old, which is what I was like, your body's not physically developed like 27 year old professional basketball players. And so, yeah, I mean, that time is getting developing physically kind of developing to a different style of play the nba game is a lot different than college um well in the nba first of all there's the spacing of the game matters so much more so everything is you can think about is more spread out the whole key to the nba is kind of creating mismatches where you can get open shots and so everything is is one or two actions to create an open shot. Whereas college, you know, the shot clock is longer and you can kind of run through a bunch of different motion, you know, actions on an offense. The NBA is way more kind of like everything is, is kind of geared way more specifically to get certain kind of shots. And so, yeah, there's a, for most players, there's, there's a lot that you kind of have to cut out on your game and the things that you do well, you have to do those things really well. So in addition to the coaching that the person said listen you if, if you do more than two dribbles you're probably making a mistake was there any was it sort of up to you to figure out how to deal with 
guys who've got huge wingspan or something, or they're sort of key jungle guides that are saying, take you under their wing and saying, hey, this is how you negotiate this. No, it's it's pretty much figuring it out for yourself. I mean, they have really, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there are technical things of kind of like what to do. You know, what going back and watching film, and then okay, this happens, and then what did you miss here? What should have you done? But when it comes down to like, you physically have to like box this guy out and not let him get the rebound. Like that's kind of like you're on your own on that one. <laughs> like fig- figure it out. Or like, there's another guy on the bench that like, we'll get to figure it out. <laughs> and so did you were there, I mean, there must've been ups and downs with this as you're learning yeah. at this different level of play. But for me, like the, the kind of ups and downs had to do with injuries during my career. So for the first five years of my career, I, you know, it was generally kind of on an upswing. You know, I was playing, I wasn't a starter, but I was playing quite a bit for Orlando. We made the playoffs a couple times. I had a good role. And then after my fifth year, I had a number of injuries where I was kind of spending more time kind of rehabbing every summer oh, than boy. like continuing to like work on your, the things that make you a good basketball player. And I could just see my skill level and what I was able to contribute was starting to like go down and down. By that time, I'm 26, 27. That's kind of your, your peak generally. And I wasn't like a particularly like athletic person. <laughs> so I needed to make shots and, you know, to do that. And particularly then so athletic, in other words, among the 0.1%, the lower, <laughs> the lower threshold yeah, of the exactly. 0.1%. Yeah. Of, of the 6'9", 240 pound, you know, guys. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You were quite, you were like a millisecond slower than some of the other guys. Yeah. And but but I enough. mean, I think, I think for, for a lot of like role type players in the NBA, like the edge of being on your game and being ready to contribute and then being not is a very small margin. And for me, I always found that being in the best shape, getting tons of reps up, shooting, kind of working on my game in the off season kind of set the stage and got me got me ready to play and get mm-hmm. off to a good start and when i had injuries when you're rehabbing you're not doing those things what are the players like just sort of as colleagues day to day as opposed to you know they sort of got magical powers yeah. on the one hand for the ordinary public but on the other hand it's just a job yeah so what are they like uh i mean <laughs> There, it's, it's interesting because you got guys from all different walks of life. I mean, you have guys that were like anointed stars since they were, you know, young and in high school, uh-huh. you know, making $20 million a year. You have other guys that are just trying to scrap and hang on. It's kind of what you would imagine if you're with kind of this closely knit group of people uh, who are kind of in their 20s, men. Most people like to have a good time, jo- have jokes. <laughs> <laughs> like to kill other guys in the locker room on the plane about different things. Were there specific had, stories that stood out to you as sort of illustrating the extremes? I, I think like the Patrick Ewing one to me is like, those were the guys that like were most impressive to me were the guys like Patrick Ewing is going to be a hall of fame in Orlando is last year. I think that was the first time ever. I think he like didn't play in a game where the coach didn't decide to play him. And he was still back in practice, like doing his same pre-practice routine, like working on the same things he to me was probably like the greatest teammate that I've ever had. And it's because of his, first of all, he's a, he's a, you know, a nice person and everything like that. But more than that, it was like, he was a true like warrior and professional. There were other ones too. I mean, like 
you know, Grant Hill is, is another one who is just, most people kind of know him as, you know, the super classy guy. But again, like he was another one that like his work ethic and kind of rehabbing back through multiple injuries when you kind of look at kind of what he didn't accomplish. You're like, why would you, you know, you could easily hang it up and have a comfortable life and go do many more things. And it was just like people dealing with adversity was, th- those were really things that you remember. Talk about your injuries. I mean, the, the bane of all athletes from weekend warriors to professional athletes. And I would think that you would have such a routine, knowing the risk and also knowing you, such a routine in place for every possible different types of routines you're doing to strengthen muscles and nerves and everything to reduce the risk of it. But still, they happen. So what was what was the story? And, you know, looking back on it, what are you? Yeah, I mean, so I mean, reflections. The one that really limited me, I had a I had ACL reconstruction one year and I had, you know, a groin tear that I had to go get repaired once. I, those weren't, those were actually ones that, you know, you could recover from pretty easily. Like the one that really. And this is just, just it's just overused or unavoidable or. Yeah. The groin, the groin thing was a overuse type of thing. It just, it started hurting kind of in October and it kept hurting all the way till May till I could get it operated on. Oof. Um the ACL, I just tore, tore it in a game. Um, that was a one-time type of thing. Um, but no, the one, and this is a lot of players have this, is kind of just cartilage degeneration in your knee. When that happens, it just starts to hurt. And there's really not, <laughs> there's really not much you can do about it. At that point, I mean, you know, I've been playing basketball for you know, over a decade and it's a lot of wear and tear and it's just, that's kind of the price of it. But so that was the really one where it just, there's not a quick fix because it's just pain <laughs> and it's just, can you, you know, deal with the pain? That sort of sets the time when you begin to think of transitioning out of basketball. Yeah. And was that a big decision for you to say, okay, I've done this professional sports thing. It's a dream of like every kid in America. Now it's time to move on or. By the end of my career, I was kind of welcoming it because I could see I wasn't the player that I kind of used to be. I wasn't able to put in kind of the work that I needed to, it seemed, because you, you do a hard workout and then your knee would swell up and it's then you're taking a couple of days off. I just didn't enjoy that. What were you most and looking forward to doing in the post-basketball world? I didn't really know, but I had had a couple of friends and one in particular that had gone to business school. And while I was playing, I got more and more interested in investing and kind of learning about and reading about markets. I was kind of focused on kind of going back to school and actually getting kind of more formal, a more formal education to learn about business and markets and investing. Is it difficult for athletes to transition to post-competitive career? If there's not something that you can kind of transition to right away, it's really difficult. Like if you don't have something in those first kind of few years, that's like a new goal or a new challenge to do. I think it beca- it's, it's really difficult. Speaking for myself, the process of applying to business school and getting ready for the GMAT and going to school for those first, I mean, that was a three-year type process. To me, it was like the best kind of transition I could have done. It was something that was outside of basketball. So, you know, you're doing something new. Um, but it was also kind of a chance to re redefine yourself a little bit, I think. When athletes have come to you asking about what to do beyond getting an MBA, what's been your advice? What is sort of the, the what's well, the I mean, there? <laughs> the, 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 for the ones that are interested, you know, who have finished up 
their college degrees. I, I think it's a fantastic option. There were a couple of professional athletes and ex-military people. Like those people to me seemed like the ones that got the most out of like a full-time MBA program. Then you transition to business. You work at Bridgewater, then you go on to uh, work in the front office. Obviously, there's tons of rather hackneyed metaphors that people use in sports and then for business about teamwork and focusing on the goal and humility and all those types of things. Which one of those do you actually feel like have been useful for you? And which ones are you just like total BS? <laughs> no, well, I think the ones that are actually that are that are useful is the kind of being a good teammate part of it, empathizing kind of with things that they're going through and struggling with, holding people accountable when they need to be held accountable, like yourself being, you know, willing to be kind of held to account when you, you're not doing the job right. Like those are all things that you do in sports that sports teaches you that I think really well-functioning kind of groups also kind of do when they're working outside of sports. And uh, which ones are the classic sports metaphors that you just think are kind of BS uh, that you find <laughs> or the, like, you know, the impression people have of, of uh, Uber athletes? Things that come down to like challenging kind of like your character or your toughness or your manhood. Those are the ones to me that are like, I don't really like buy into that much, but obviously like every coach still uses them for mo motivation for whatever reason. <laughs> so then you, you worked Bridgewater for a couple of years that you go off to the Pistons now yeah. looking at it from more of a business side, how's your perspective changed about a team, what it takes to make it work, how mm. the business works. Working in a front office and especially like for a team that was, when we took over the Pistons weren't, weren't a very good team. And we were trying to kind of just get them back into the playoffs is like, Number one, kind of the role of, of luck. And I don't mean to say that there's, you know, there are definitely people that are better talent evaluators than others in the NBA, but luck comes down to it quite a bit. And so that just the, the importance of giving yourself as many kind of at-bats and taking opportunities to get the right players in as you can, I think is probably like the most important thing. And just how difficult it is to determine whether or not someone is going to be like a su successful NBA player. You know, the measurements on players, like their size, their wingspan kind of measures of their athleticism. You can look at college stats, although it's harder now because, you know, guys come out after one year. What I found especially kind of hard was projecting how many of those guys are really going to make the skill work kind of early on in their career, all they live about to kind of make them great NBA players and which ones kind of don't when things get tough, even though like you watch them in college or you've seen them play and they're the best, most competitive player on the floor, when things get tough, which direction kind of did they go and are they well, how do they deal with adversity? That that's to me, this was the hardest thing kind of to figure out. I don't think yeah. anyone's figured it out. <laughs> so and is your, is your sense that's just literally just unknowable? how somebody mm. responds and that type of thing? Or as you spent more time doing it, were you beginning, do you get an intuitive read or something like that? Yeah, I think there's a little, I mean, there's, you know, I, I don't think it's completely unknowable. It's very difficult, but I think that there's also a piece of it, the kind of people that you put around them early in their career to help develop them. Yeah, and that, that to me is kind of, it comes the, the role of coaching and player development. Well, it doesn't sound and like so you I, got much player development. I mean, you're saying that you had to figure out stuff well, <laughs> under the net by yourself, but then that's 
Yeah. What's and I mean, key? I think times have changed like quite a bit because the staves now on most teams are a lot bigger and there's four or five guys whose their whole job is to do player development. And there's, huh. you know, when I played, there were two strength coaches. Now we have four strength coaches. That's a huge key early on is, is how kind of people that are spending the time developing young players how are they kind of both kind of challenging them, encouraging them when they're down, like striking that right balance to, to get the most out of them? What you're saying is, this has come up with other guests on the show, A, the role of luck in life, and that looking back on it, how much that matters, it seems to have a huge impact, actually, on the, the projections of my guests. Actually, you know, I have some guests who grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China. Mm. This is like a major determinative factor. And you were having this unbelievable athletic prowess, which is really luck. It, I mean, it required a lot of work, but the raw ingredients there. So I think that that's interesting. And also the difficulty of judging talent. Both those things, I think, are interesting. And the difficulty of judging talent, I've actually, you see it a lot in money management. Mm -hmm. Like, who is going to be good at, at managing money? You could have a lot of different attributes, but the ultimate thing at the end is, is who pulls the trigger on the investments. And it is a very, very difficult thing to ascertain who's going to do that uh, well or poorly. And in the arts, you see this all the time, which is that a lot of the role, works of art that we now regard with the benefit of time as brilliant at the time, were completely unrecognized. This is something I wrote about on the Substack post. So a lot of the artists, that we, writers, that we now think, none of them were recognized in their time as, you know, Melville, Moby Dick, or Don Quixote, these types of, anyways. So I think this thing about luck and the difficulty of recognizing talent, if you could talk about those each a little bit more. NBA teams have a hard time of doing that with guys on their own team that they watch every day in practice. You can go down lists of rosters of guys that bloom into all-stars after their third or fourth or fifth year that huh. teams, you know, either gave away or, you know, they weren't working in that situation and then in some other situation where it works. So it's not just kind of projecting an 18-year-old who's never played an NBA game. I mean, it, it gets hard to do <laughs> when the guy's on your, in your gym every day. And those people who blossom, because people love these types of stories, what is it? Those things that you see up close after the third or the fourth year, somebody struggling, 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 and all of a sudden it's like, boom, what happens? More times than not, it has to do with kind of, you know, role and players around them. So there, for whatever reason, there could have been, you know, the group that they were around before wasn't a great fit for them. There was someone in front of them that they didn't get an opportunity. They were kind of boxed in where they were not able to show what they can really do. I mean, that, that's, that happens a lot of times. A but lot that's of times crazy it, complicated. If you've got five guys and so then you've got a bench, yeah. it's a whole unbelievably complex dynamic. Yeah. And then it, 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 a lot of times though, it's that you draft a guy who's 18 or 19 years old. So five years down the road, he's 23 and you're still getting, there's still four more years that you can get better. So a lot of it is that, you know, just the way that kind of the NBA works, you, you get drafted as a rookie you have a four-year contract and a team has to generally makes a decision on you after your third year. And it's just so early. It's just so early in your career to determine whether or not this, this guy is even going to do it. So that, that's difficult. And then the luck part of it, I remember talking to Stan Van Gundy, who was the coach and president of the Pistons about this. I mean, we, 
you're talking about for 80% of the league, luck is the difference between having a four-year career versus a 10-year career. I'd say for me, it was probably like 95%. <laughs> say, say more about that. What do you mean for you? Yeah. So, so like for like, there were plenty of players that were probably playing in Europe that didn't make it in the NBA or, or, you know, got drafted, didn't play, got cut, and then just had a, that were outside the NBA looking in that were, you know, as good or better than me. Like no question about it. And so for me, it just happened to be that while I was on that kind of that early part of my career, I got on a team that was just happened to be rebuilding and I got to play right away and had a skill set that matched with a couple of other guys that they brought in (laughs) a year later and, you know, ended up signing a contract that kept me around for that amount of time. But I could have easily gone to a team where I didn't play early on or someone was in front of me that I was gone in two or three years. And I think it's, that's not unique to basketball. I mean, you look at the difference between the guys on the PGA tour and the guys who aren't, I mean, it's, you know, what sometimes a stroke or, or less, right. At that um, level. Absolutely. Yeah, that, at that level. So it's, yeah. I mean, the, the luck part for most players and especially when you go down kind of the eighth through 12th guy on the roster, luck is a huge part of it. How much does being a decent guy matter? In other words, I've been a part of groups that are like yeah. people, people are sort of motivated by fear that there's a strong leader and it's fear. And I've been in other groups where it's much more collaborative. And I think for some people, a more hierarchical, intense thing worked better for other people, a more collaborative, lower key thing. In your experience, how much, I mean, you're, you're, you're a good guy. So how much <laughs> being a good guy matter in the NBA? And then how much of those two different styles do you see it in team organization and what the impact is on the players? Giving yourself the benefit of the doubt can make the difference, can, can buy you time. <laughs> That's how I look at it. How do you give yourself the benefit of the doubt early on when maybe you haven't played a lot or something like that? It's kind of through, it's through good habits. It's through your work ethic. It's through your level of attention to detail. It's, it's all kind of like, to throw a sports cliche at there, it's, it's kind of like the little things, uh-huh. right? That when the decision makers are going around the room and they're talking to the trainer and they're talking to the PT and they're talking to the strength coach and they're talking to the equipment guy, if that guy, if, if all those people are like, yeah, you know what, that guy's, guy works his ass off, he's a good guy. Like in a GM's mind, it's like, well, let's keep him around. If all those guys are like, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you, and you haven't played. And that, that story starts to kind of propagate through the league because all those people talk to their counterparts on other teams and, yep. and they talk about guys. The guys are toast. You might get one more chance rather than a couple chances. So I asked all the guests if you've heard the other podcasts, the ad, do you have any questions for me? We haven't talked about markets or the world at all, but you are kind of the one of the smartest like macro people that I've heard talk, just kind of seeing you present in front of, wow. of people. And I would like to get a quick, your kind of quick take on the world. I think that, of course, a narrative that's written right now is that there's kind of obligations that you know the US government particularly has to meet, and they're going to have to print a lot of money to do it. And people, you know, there's a lot of people kind of harkening back to the 40s where the way out of it is to kind of run a level of inflation, kind of 
above the the level of kind of the interest rate that you have to pay and that you can kind of work your way out of it that way. Do you see that as actually working? And if not, how do you see kind of the next 20 years playing out? (laughs) I'll I'll say 10 years. (laughs) So I think it is useful now to try to make sense of those things to really step back and go super big picture initially because I think just think it helps you calibrate the forces that are at work. Basically, since the end of the Cold War, people discovered all over the world that, wait a minute, this capitalism debt, it works. The reason why the Cold War ended up the way it did with the United States winning the Soviet Union losing is because capitalism was more dynamic. And basically, all over the world, people have gone to that. Debt levels are high in the United States. Debt levels are high in China. We disagree globally about who should be in charge, should you have a democracy or an authoritarian system. But the disagreement over capitalism versus communism, that's over. It's done. There's capitalism and there's high levels of debt. There's all over the world. So that's definitely a force that's going on in the world. But I think that the other thing that is going on in the world is that we are in the middle of an unbelievable two really, really big structural shifts that you have to calibrate in there to sort of arrive at that 10-year forecast. One of them is is what's going on in the waves of technological change in terms of what that does for which companies succeed and die, in terms of what it does for uh, lifespan of people, biological revolutions. And I think predicting where these technologies are going to be is extremely difficult. And they can be massively productivity enhancing, but they're definitely going to be incredibly disruptive. And they're going to be disruptive all over the world. Millions of people are going to lose their jobs and millions of people are going to gain their jobs and new things. On the one hand, you've got this high debt level, but on the other hand, you have this huge technological revolution that I think can be very productivity enhancing. And it can also be incredibly deflationary. The other big things is I think this global warming threat, the disruption from it is real. And the policy response to it is real in terms of creating alternative energy and electric cars and what that does for raw materials. The last thing, I think the big force is this ideological competition. So I think the big forces are the debt, the technology, this environmental disruption, and then this ideological battle that is underway. I think that you can get inflation in certain sectors, but I think overall, you're not going to get much at all. The last thing I'd say is the way that those four forces begin to interact, that ideological competition, something I do think you need to be aware of where the things could tilt is, I believe way more than I'd imagined that Biden recognizes that if he doesn't create unbelievably obvious progress to people, Mm -hmm. that there's a risk that the U.S. government could get taken over by people that want to literally destroy the government. If he's able to get through subsequent bills like $4 trillion of spending on infrastructure and all that, that could be a game changer. Like that yeah. would change my thesis a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like though, that if he doesn't, like the, like the inequality problem just kind of keeps getting worse. 